Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Chapter 8 of Peter Singer's book, The Most Good You Can Do, is an interesting set of, on the one hand, arguments and summaries and speculations, and on the other hand, some very important insights about the, the possibilities for reason and emotion all kind of mixed up together. It begins by talking about how Bernard Williams is claiming something about human beings and their capacity to take the point of view of the universe, and then saying effective altruists seem to have achieved what Williams thought cannot be done as, you know, sort of like a challenge. And, and the question here then really in this chapter is how has effective altruism's characteristic approach come about? How is it possible if big heavy hitters like Bernard Williams are saying it can't be done. And he brings up some culture critics as well, like David Brooks and other people. How is it that there's this massive movement out there? And we should remind ourselves, well, what are some of the key characteristics of effective altruism that are being put on the table here? One of these is taking the point of view of the universe. That's what the chapter begins with. And what does it mean to take the point of view of the universe? It means to move back from one's own individual perspective, one's attachment to oneself and one's own interests, egoistic perspective, right? And one's own connections with other people in the small circles around us and to think about things in a larger context. And Singer points out the fact that this detachment is not total, but it does make an important difference to how effective altruists live. So it doesn't have to be complete or an effective altruist is, you know, a hypocrite or something like that. Singer says we have to be realistic about this. Nobody is going to be perfectly universe-minded thinking, but we can be more or less. There's a continuum there. And then the, the next key trait comes up in that very passage. He says, it's based on reasoning of a kind that comes close to evaluating how they're living from a point of view that is independent of their own dispositions, projects, and effects. Factions, right? So there's two things he's signaling there, this point of view of the universe, or at least not just us, and then a capacity to use reason to live ethically. Doesn't mean that you can't use other things, but reasoning would be central to this approach. And that's what turns some people off on it. There's another really key trait to effective altruism that he's talking about in this chapter, which is part of what makes it effective altruism, valuing the numbers of people affected as central. And this is, this is where we can say, listen, effective altruism might not be exactly the same thing as utilitarianism, but it's pretty darn close. There's a lot of overlap. There's not a lot of, as people say, daylight between these two things. And really central to the utilitarian perspective in ethics and programs you could say is saying that everybody's outcomes, whether it be pleasure and pain or, you know, some other measure matter as much as everybody else's. And we need to take into account the numbers that are being affected. So some things will become a good solution if more people are positively affected by them, even though they, it was a bad solution before in the past from a utilitarian point of view. 
So, you know, is it possible for a person to adopt those perspectives? Well, yeah. I mean, utilitarians have been around since utilitarianism started. And even before that, people can be identified as utilitarian before the word came into parlance. So obviously it is a human possibility. What Singer is more concerned to think about is, well, how, on the one hand, how did this come about? And how has it become a viable movement in the present when it didn't seem to have that much traction in the past? And what's the relationship between reasoning and other forms of motivation, including the emotions in this? So Singer is, you know, very committed to what he calls sociobiology, providing evolutionary points of view on these sorts of things to buttress his views. And he talks about evolutionary and social development. So he says that, you know, if we consider, here we go, the, the possibility our capacity to reason can play a critical role in a decision to live ethically offers a solution to the perplexing problem that effective altruism would otherwise pose for evolutionary theory. And he says, there's no difficulty explaining why evolution would select for a capacity to reason, right? The smarter we are in certain respects, the more we're likely to survive, pass on our genes, not get eaten by the, the big cats on the savannah, whatever, is, you know, solve problems, figure out how to make fire and transport, all, all those sorts of things. Those involve reasoning or the intellect or whatever you want to call it. Our higher cognitive capacities is part of what set us apart. And then, you know, making tools, having language, all of that sort of stuff, big advantage, right? So he goes on and he says, if our capacity to reason also enables us to see that the good of others is, from a more universal perspective, as important as our own good, then we have an explanation for why effective altruists act in accordance with such principles. Like our ability to do higher mathematics, this use of reason to recognize fundamental moral truths would be a byproduct of another trait or ability that was selected for because it enhanced our reproductive fitness. So what he's saying here is not that through evolution, we would have developed this moral capacity because it was advantageous for us directly. Instead, of he's saying, listen, we developed these other cognitive capacities. This is something that kind of rides along and turns out to be a possibility. And it, it, it also conduces to individual and group survival. And so therefore, that's why we have this ability not necessarily a, a realized ability in every case, but an ability to step back and think about things in a larger perspective that doesn't just include us, doesn't just include our groups, but it could include humanity as, as such. This is highly speculative and it's perfectly fine that it's highly speculative. He's in essence telling an interesting story here. A little bit later on, you know, he's going to talk about IQ scores going up and about effective altruism emerging. Now, here we go. We can ask why effective altruism emerges the movement only now. Have people's reasoning abilities suddenly improved? And he says, yeah, as a matter of fact, that's the case. So here's the socio part of the sociobiology. Affluent nations, a sizable segment of the population lives very comfortably, does not have to worry about economic security. So the need to find meaning and fulfillment in life comes to the fore. Many people turn to effective altruism. Um, substantial wealth is now coming to a new generation of people who work in areas that analyze data and evidence. We're going to talk about that more. Technological changes that make it possible for effective altruists to connect with each other via the internet have been important. And he says these developments might well be sufficient triggers for the emergence of effective altruism, 
even if our reasoning abilities had remained static, but it looks like our reasoning abilities across the population have actually been going up in time, which is kind of funny because, you know, each older generation is like, these kids these days, they don't actually know anything. They can't reason anything. If what Singer is saying is correct, then that would be completely false on the part of those old fuddy-duddies who are complaining, right, and telling the kids to get off their lawn and all that sort of stuff. So that, you know, again, interesting speculations could be true. We don't really know. What about this interest in numbers? That's kind of a feature that we should consider. And again, rather speculative given how Singer is putting it out there, but this capacity to look at the numbers of people involved as being relevant, being important, being something that we need to bring to the fore, really essential to effective altruism and utilitarianism. So Singer says that people who are already, you might say, primed to engage in abstract reasoning or value abstract reasoning, we might even say who see the relevant and results of abstract reasoning are more inclined to think in terms of numbers. There is also a very interesting remark that I think we should consider as well. He says that I'm not trying to paint effective altruists as coldly rational calculating machines. Holden Karnofsky blogged about what he sees as the misconception that effective altruists are in order to act as rationally as possible, suppressing their passion, suppressing the affective side of themselves. And Karnofsky says, effective Effective altruism is what we are passionate about. We're excited by the idea of making the most of our resources and helping others as much as possible. And that's, that's, you know, what a lot of people say, you know, I'm interested in the numbers, the numbers talk to me, the numbers give me a thing to be excited and, and passionate about. I'm happier that I can help 2000 people rather than just 1000 people or 20 people. And that's, that's a motivation for people. Is that fostered by being in tech fields? Maybe, maybe not, you know, probably not. Is it fostered by having had a mathematics degree somewhere in the background? Maybe, who knows, right? This is all very speculative. Then he also brings up Joshua Green's model of a point and shoot camera as being like what we do with morality, which I think... You know, there's something to this, but again, he's engaging in some storytelling here. Green suggests, as he says, that the way most people make moral judgments can be thought of akin to taking photographs with a camera that's normally used in point and shoot mode, but can be switched to a manual mode that overrides the automatic settings. When we're confronted with a situation calling for moral judgment, we usually have an instinctive gut reaction that tells us when something is wrong. Notice he says, tells us when something is wrong, not tells us when something is right, nor tells us how to balance things out, nor tells us what's ethically salient in the, the situation, just tells us what is wrong. So we're already dealing with a very reductive treatment of morality here. Like a point and shoot camera, our intuitive responses are quick and easy to operate and in normal circumstances yield good results. That's debatable. But in rare situations with special features, they can lead us astray. In that case, we will do better if we switch to manual mode. That is put aside our instinctive reactions and think the issue through. So the idea behind this is we only really do ethics in the sense of like thinking about stuff and moral reasons reasoning, practical reasoning, when we're confronted with weird situations, one-offs, you know, things that are outside of our normal sphere. How normal is this picture? I leave that up to you to think about. It certainly doesn't map on to my experience even before I began studying philosophy and ethics, but you know, psychologists love these sorts of models. And he does say something kind of interesting here, which again, I don't think we want to draw too much from. 
He talks about doing brain studies and asking people to make judgments about trolley problems while images were taken of their brain activity. And the assertion here is that when they're, they're engaging in utilitarian thinking about this or effective altruist thinking about this, the more cognitive sides of their brain are lighting up and in other cases they're not. Now, can we draw huge conclusions from this? Probably not. So a lot of these are interesting speculations, really in the realm of moral philosophy rather than anything scientific, but you know, they could be decent enough for clarifying things and motivating things. The really key question that comes up in this chapter that I think is absolutely important, does reasoning have to conflict with or repress emotions, particularly if it's reasoning in this very big substantive sense about thinking about the good for other people, what we could call practical reasoning, prudential reasoning, not just instrumental, I've already got my ends set, how do I achieve those ends, but rather thinking in a much, much broader sense. So emotional attachments or responses or dispositions, however we want to consider this entire affective side of ourselves. Singer says, listen, these are not incompatible with effective altruism. He brings up the example of you don't have to stop feeling affection for and loving your child in order to make some sacrifices and send money overseas where it's going to benefit thousands of children rather than just your own child. As a matter of fact, you could even work that kid into it. You can be like, all right, now we're going to think about our charitable giving and we're going to do it in a very prudential way. You can model that behavior with your child who you love, right? The other thing is he talks about reasoning working in conjunction with emotion. Can reasoning work in conjunction with all emotion? Not necessarily. You know, Singer brings up the example of egoism, right? So that could actually get in the way, my own selfish desires of proper practical reasoning along these lines. Racism, nationalism, he also brings up as possibilities that could get in the way. But empathy could actually, if it's not just listened to as the voice of God or the still silent voice within that decides everything for you, the ultimate arbiter, but it's brought in sort of like an advisory voice could be quite helpful and could reinforce what reason needs to do. This, by the way, this point of view is not something radically new. We see this in Aristotelian and Platonic and Stoic and a lot of Christian thought in the ancient period and even going into the Middle Ages. We see this represented in quite a few modern thinkers. So this is not something absolutely radically new, this idea of integrating emotion, at least in some respect, and proper practical reasoning, where neither one of them are taken as like absolutely pure or or the infallible voice, but they have to, you know, work with each other and kind of balance each other with reasoning taking the main role. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.